We're ending a series of lessons today. If you've not been with us, we've been talking for a few weeks about renovation. About our lives being completely changed. And we've said not only is it possible, and I'm talking the kind of change that makes a difference in your marriage, the kind of change that makes a difference in your neighborliness, the kind of change if you struggle with anger that that begins to wash away over the course of your life. I'm talking real change, character change. And also, that begins to bubble itself out into the circumstances of your life. We've said that not only is change possible, check this out, it's actually expected for those of us who have a a real connection with God because of Jesus Christ. And we talked a little bit about what it looks like. We said it looks like, and this was helpful for me, we said it looks like, that change looks like in our lives, the flow of it, the energy of it, is you and I growing, enlarging, we said, expanding up toward God with a heart of worship. And it also looks like us growing in deeper in our connections with one another in community getting deeper and deeper in our love for one another. And it looks like us expanding and our heart expanding out in serving those who are more unfortunate than we are and those who are far from God and expanding and oozing out toward them with the love of God. We said that we, before we ended this series, we were going to get even more practical and we were going to talk about how. So today, I'm going to give you a first step. I'm going to tell you where this process actually begins. But it's not just a first step that you took once. It's like a first step you take every day. Today is going to be eminently practical and very, very simple by the time we get to the end. In fact, shockingly simple. We're going to get to the end, and I guarantee you, we're going to leave all of us and think, it can't be that simple. But it kind of is. It's not easy. But it's pretty simple. I'm going to start, my apologies, I'm going to start with a sports illustration, basketball to be exact, and then that's going to weave its way through. You'll see how that works. That's going to weave its way through to this spiritual principle that we're talking about today. But to prepare us for this, because I want you to know, I have actually been burdened about this. I have favorites. And I think, this is just me, this is not God speaking, this is me, but I think the best book in the Bible is the book of Romans. I think that's the only book in the Bible where somebody inspired by God kind of sat down and said, okay, systematically, let me lay it out for you what it means to really have a connection with God. What's that about? He's a lawyer, so he lays it out almost like a legal brief, very logically, step by step. But I think it's the most important and the most powerful book in the Bible. If that's true then chapters 1 through 8 are the most important and powerful part of the book of Romans. And if that's true, chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, and maybe chapters 8, are the most powerful part of the most powerful part of the most powerful book in the Bible. And we're going to be looking at that this morning. And I feel overwhelmed. So I'm going to ask you to help me as we seek God. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would speak through me And he would open your chest and give us all the ability to listen so we can hear this today. Because this is profound. This is one of those moments we get it like every two or three months, four months, where we say, hey, if you miss everything else, and I'm talking about everything else over the last three months, don't miss this. Stand with me as we pray. Father, I ask that you would speak to us this morning. 
I ask that you would forgive me of my sin and purify me. Lord, make me your vessel for speaking and make all of us your vessel for listening. And I pray today that this truth might be really applied. God, that we might see it in a new way for those of us who know this and that there would be a powerful thundering reminder and for those of us for whom, God, this is brand new, I pray that you would give understanding because we don't get this unless you show us. Peel back the edge of heaven and show us how powerful and clear this is and what a difference it makes. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so uh, the analogy, if you follow sports much, you've heard it many times from professional players, and you've also seen it if you've followed sports for very long, but teams actually, for teams to win, like to win a championship, like the Super Bowl or the NBA championship, teams have to actually learn how to win. Part of that is learning to play together, and part of that is learning, and I've heard many players say this over the years, you know, games have rhythm, series have rhythm, and you have to weather the storms. And you have to learn how to weather the storms because some team's going to make a run. And when they make a run, if you get overwhelmed and you don't learn the fortitude to weather that run, then you just get swept up in it and you lose. But if you learn to hang in there, keep playing your game, don't get out of your head, get to just play your game, then you can weather the storm and then you'll have your own run. And perhaps you win. Teams have to learn how to win. A great example of that is, if you don't even follow sports, you know a little bit about a few years ago, LeBron James leaving Cleveland. And, you know, they formed the triumvirate, the great three. Three guys coming together in Cleveland, three of the best players in the NBA. They all came together to play together in Cleveland. And it was a foregone conclusion who was going to win the NBA championship that year, only it didn't happen. That first year, the Miami Heat did not win the NBA championship. They were very discouraged. They spent a lot of energy and a lot of money investing in three of the probably ten best players in the NBA playing together. One of them, the best basketball player on the planet, LeBron James, and they didn't win the championship. They had to learn how. And, of course, the next year they did win, and the year after that they won. So the first thing you have to have, obviously, you have to have the ability I mean, I don't care how much a high school team learns how. If we send Freedom High School's basketball team to play in the NBA, they're not going to win no matter how much, you know, we teach them to win. But if you've got the ability, then you have to learn how to win. The same is true spiritually. We have to have the ability to renovate, and then we have to think like someone who renovates. So we have to have the ability to renovate, and then we have to think like someone who renovates. So let's begin this morning in a surprising place. Let's start with what we're going to call the basis. So before we look at what even is our main passage of Scripture, we're going to spend as much time on the introduction as we do on the body of our message this morning. We're going to get a flyover of the first, really, five chapters of Romans, and we're going to hunker down when we get to the main part of what we want to say this morning in Romans chapter 6. And if you have a Bible, I want to strongly encourage you to open it to the book of Romans. It's in the middle of the New Testament. If you've got your phone, we're going to be dialing through. Some of this scripture is not going to be on the screen, and I'll go through it quickly. We're going to dip into Romans 3. We're going to dip into Romans 4. We're going to dip briefly into Romans 5, and then we're going to hunker down in Romans chapter 6. 
So let's start with the basis, and then we'll read our Scripture, Romans 6, and then we'll get to the truth. And I think it's going to be freeing for us this morning. Okay, do we have the ability? First, remember, you've got to have the ability. You've got to be an NBA team with talent to win the NBA championship. Then you've got to learn how to win. You've got to learn how to think like a winner. So do we have the ability? Flat out, do we have the ability? And let me answer that in a word. No, we don't. Surprised, right? Listen to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Paul says this. He's actually quoting from the Psalms. Look, as it's written, he says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks a God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There's not an exception. Then a few verses later, in verse 23, he says, okay, for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We do not have the ability to please God. We do not have the ability to relate to God. We do not have the ability to change, to transform, to renovate. We do not have the ability to understand God. We do not have the ability to be in relationship with God. We do not have the ability to be okay with God. We are the high school basketball team that tries to play the NBA team. We do not have the ability. If you think differently, then try to go through a day without doing anything wrong, relating perfectly, and as you're trying to relate perfectly, not only don't mess up, but offer life in every circumstance, thinking of others, never about yourself, not only in your actions, but in your thoughts. If you make it through a day, congratulations, you won't make it through a weekend. We don't have the ability in ourselves Our effort is not enough. Our effort to be good people is not good enough. Even if we're better than all of our neighbors, we cannot be pleasing to God. We cannot make up for our shortcomings. We can't make up for the harm that we've done to others and to ourselves. We can't even understand God. We can't be what we were designed to be. We can't be what we truly want to be. We cannot renovate. We don't have the ability... None of us. Not only is that so, it gets worse before it gets better. Not only is that so, but part of God's purpose in our lives is to force us to realize this. That's what He's doing in some of your lives right now. His work in us begins by showing us that we don't have this ability within ourselves. His work in us, begins always by showing us that we don't have this ability in ourselves. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, real quick. The first part of verse 20 says this. The law, God's rules and regulations, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase. I gave you the law to enlarge sin. I gave you the law to show just how far short you fall. Paul is suggesting that this was the purpose of the law, to show us that we don't get it, that our best efforts are not enough. We have to understand that our efforts cannot get us to what we were designed to be. Our best efforts cannot make us pleasing to God. They cannot build a true sustaining relationship with God. To use Paul's word, his official religious word, Paul says our efforts cannot accomplish true righteousness. And when you read that word, you can almost substitute, be right with God and have a right understanding of God. 
Our best efforts at being good do not make us good. Our most righteous actions, our most righteous actions do not make up for all of our shortcomings. And even our most righteous actions are always tainted by our unrighteous core. We must see this. This is what the first three chapters of Romans are all about. He takes a good portion of the book to make that one point. We all blow it all the time. Nobody gets it. Nobody understands. Jews, you don't understand. A whole chapter about that. Gentiles, you're worse. You don't understand at all. You don't even understand what you don't understand. Why is this so? Why is God so intent on us seeing that we don't get it? Why is God so intent on showing us? It's like He's kicking a dog when it's down. Why is He intent on showing us that our best efforts are not enough? Because we must get to the end of our own righteousness. We have to not try harder. We have to give up. Or we'll never learn to fully and truly rely on God. Last week, I was with Paul and Leanne Howdershell, and they were organizing a meeting in Herndon with the leadership of the kind of the half of the East Coast and a CR ministry that Paul and Leanne had been involved with for years. And CR stands for Christian Recovery, and some of you here at Gateway have benefited greatly from it's a 12-step program with Christ at the center. They choose to name the higher power, and they call him Jesus because they've come to see the truth of that. This is a truth that folks who are involved in Celebrate Recovery rehearse every week. I heard someone say, they came up to me afterwards, uh, Leanne asked me to share a couple of things, so I did, and someone came up to me afterwards talking with me, and they, the incredible story, just great spirit, and they said that their life completely bottomed out. They you know, were very high-paid professional and lost their practice and their license as a result of their best efforts. And then they said this, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I think he said that because he gets this truth. Listen, sometimes when we hear that kind of thing, especially from recovery folks, we say, oh, good for those poor addict people who make the most of a bad situation that they put themselves in. But they mean it. They're deadly serious about it. They're not just being positive. They've come to understand something fundamental. Within ourselves, we don't have the ability. We don't. But, and you knew a but was coming. God has given us the ability we need. By grace, God has offered to fill us with His ability and with His capacity. By grace, He has offered to cover over all of our shortcomings and our sins because in the death of Jesus, He paid the penalty for those sins in Himself. He absorbed it all. Listen to chapter 4 of Romans, and I'll read verse 16 and then verse 20 through 24. Chapter 4, verse 16 says this, Therefore, the promise comes by faith. And by promise, he's called the Old Testament. He's picked out Abraham as an example for us. Look at Abraham, father of faith. I made some promises to Abraham that were literal promises, but also spiritual promises. Great promise. And listen, those promises, they come by faith. So that it may be by grace. In other words, it's not that Abraham was such a good guy. It came by grace through my promise and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. And that's all who people who are of faith. That's us. Down in verse 20, he continues. 
Yet, he did Abraham. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Abraham did not have the ability, but he could believe. That's one thing Abraham could do, and he did it. He believed that God had the ability. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't earn righteousness. He wasn't right with God. He didn't do right things and he didn't have a right understanding, but it was credited to him. It's as if you go to a bank one day and you find out someone just deposited a million dollars. Thank you. It was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. Wow. So yes, we do have the ability if we accept God's credit. If we accept God's gracious offer, His ability is credited to us. By grace. And then the most scandalous point. Paul goes further. He says, and this grace is complete. And because it's complete, it's dangerous. This grace is complete and it's dangerous. Here's what I mean. It covers everything. By this I mean, first of all, His gracious forgiveness covers everything we've done or will do. His gracious forgiveness covers everything we've done. Everything. You cannot out-bad God's forgiveness. It covers everything we've done or will do. I also mean when I say it covers everything that through His gracious offer, through His grace, His goodness is given to us. i got to explain that for a second. Paul says it's even more dangerous than we think. Paul's not just saying, wow, His grace has now given us the ability to be good. He's saying His grace has given us His goodness. So when we stand, and Paul's making a legal argument, he says, it's as if when we stand in God's courtroom, and God has to assess the right and the wrong and the good and the bad of you and I, what God sees is Jesus. It doesn't matter what we've done. He's Jesus. His goodness is given to us. Amen is right. We don't have the ability within ourselves to please Him or to understand Him or to be completely good, but by grace He gives us this ability when we believe. He gives us His goodness. He gives us, Paul would say, His righteousness. He gives us, gives us, rightness with God and right understanding with God. Again, it's not that He gives us the ability to now go earn it ourselves and be good. No, He gives it to us. This grace is so complete, it's dangerous. i got to read Romans 5.20 again. I read it a minute ago, but only read half of it. Listen to this. This will blow your mind. Paul says, the law was brought in so that trespass might increase. In other words, he gives the law to magnify just how much you blow it. Just how far you are from being good in your own ability. But then he continues, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You haven't had a chance yet to think that through. If you did, you would have the same... What? 
that Paul's critics had. Because what happened is Paul's critics heard Paul say this and they said, wait, what? Say that again. Yes, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Because His grace is complete. It covers everything. Wait, what? Paul, are you saying it doesn't matter what we do? Are you sa- Wait, are you saying let's just go, oh, I believe, and then go do whatever you want? Go kill your enemies? Go have affairs? Go cheat on your taxes every year? Don't pay them at all. Are you saying what? Are you saying just continue to let your anger have free reign in your home? It doesn't matter? In fact, that's just an opportunity for there to be more grace. Paul, you're an idiot. That can't be true. Remember, when Paul used the word sin, what he really means is all of those things that we think and do by which we seek our meaning and pleasure apart from God. And he also means all those things we do through which we damage our relationships to others and ourselves. So all of that stuff, Paul says, grace covers it. Paul, you can't mean that. I do mean that. So Paul addresses the critique, but he doesn't really answer it. (laughs) But he's honest. He does address it. His answer is, it amounts to something like, don't be ridiculous. So now we've got to read Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14. And if I had never said this before at Gateway, I would say it today. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. Romans 6, 1 through 14, one of the tantamount passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. I want you to hear this. And I want you to hear this with your heart and with your head. I apologize. I'm using an updated NIV translation. Some of the phrases are slightly different than they are on the screen. I apologize, but I love the slight rephrasing. So we're going to use this one. Follow me in your own Bible or on the screen. So what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's obviously what some of you have said I'm saying. By no means. Certainly not. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with Him in His death like this, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His or in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. I love that rephrasing. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. They can't make you a slave after you're dead. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He can't die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, to finish out the illustration, the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. He's no longer a slave. He's free. And so are you in Him. So in the same way, let's use all of that as the background illustration in the same way. So now, here's the punch. Count yourselves dead to sin. 
but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law. You're under grace. You may be seated. All right, here's the truth in three steps. Step number one, in the death of Jesus, all believers died. In the death of Jesus, all believers died. Uh, Verse three, don't you know that all of us who are baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse four, we were therefore buried with him through baptism. Had a conversation yesterday with Jake Naffy and I talking about baptism. And Jake, that's what next week means. We're buried with him, you and I. Verse 5, for if we've been united with Him like this in His death, verse 8, now if we died with Christ, look, this is what Paul means. First of all, we died symbolically. Of course he's using symbolic language. We died symbolically with Christ. We died with Christ like when the American troops secured a victory in World War II. All Americans won the war. We won the war. That's the way we talk about it. Not only did we not fight, we weren't even alive. Or I wasn't. A few of you were. We won the war. So when Jesus died, we all died. But he also means it literally. Literally. This is mysterious, I know. But Paul means this literally. And God said it, so it's true. What he means is what actually died on that hill that day What died was sin. Jesus took our sin with Him and put it to death through His death. Verse 6 says this, For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and buried. Not only is this so, But secondly, in the resurrection of Jesus, all believers rose. In the death of Jesus, all believers died. In the resurrection of Jesus, all believers rose. Verse 4 again. We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 5. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Again, verse 8. Now if we die with Christ, we believe we'll also live with Him. In the resurrection of Jesus, all believers rose. We all rose to a new life in Him. A new life. You've got to get that. I take some personal responsibility if you and I don't get that. In the resurrection of Jesus, all believers rose to a new life with new ability, new goodness, new righteousness that you didn't earn. It was credited to you. It was given to you gratis. All you had to do was say, thank you. Yes. Finally, we are commanded to live out in practice what we are what we are in reality in Christ. 
We're commanded to live out in practice what we are in reality in Christ. So he's told us the spiritual reality. And now he gets practical. And what he says, in essence, I apologize. I apologize. Paul doesn't apologize. God doesn't apologize. I do, which is wrong. But I apologize because it's so simple. He says, so listen to this incredible, profound truth. Now, just go do it. Here's what it looks like. So, first steps toward you being renovated. Number one, for those of you who like steps, finally, here you go. Number one, know who you really are. Know who you really are. Literally, in verse 11, Paul says this, count yourselves, consider yourselves, think about yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the beginning of the work of renovation. Based on God's grace, we have been made pleasing to God. We have been given a real understanding of God. Our true self has been awakened and brought to life. Consider that. Learn the implications of it. Think about it. Make that part of the way you begin your day. Make that part of how you make all of your decisions. Make that part of how you resist temptation. We are dead. The old way of me doing and being and thinking is dead. And now I'm alive to God. I'm free. Count that. Consider that. Contemplate that. Learn the implications of it. Make that part of how you make decisions. And this is more than just mental gymnastics. This is thinking about things as they really are. When we blow it or when we put ourselves into difficult circumstances, we have the tendency to think that we're losers or we'll never change or we're no good, or no one really loves us, or we're not valuable, or we have nothing to add. But that's not true. The truth is that we're worthy and loved. We're pleasing to God. We get it, and we matter. Think about that. Count that. Consider that. Suppose you and I were in a desert. I'm talking desert, desert. Nothing but sand. And we're headed due north. Suppose we know this part of the desert very, very well. And suppose we're powerfully thirsty. We've not had a drink in far too long. And suppose we also know that an outpost with water is about two miles in front of us, just to the north. We're deeply and desperately thirsty, but we're headed north because we know that water is just to the north. We know this from experience. And let's fill out our illustration. Suppose we have in our possession a reliable map that somehow confirms our experience. And there is an outpost two miles ahead of us due north. Now suppose we see a mirage just on the horizon and to our east. It would do us no good to consider that mirage. If we consider it, we might pursue it. All of our good depends on us pressing north and continuing to make our choice based on what we know is true. We must consider the map. We must consider what we know to be true. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, well, we're not done yet. That was a sleepy amen. But this is amazing stuff. Count yourselves. Count it. 
Think about it. Know the implications of that. Learn it. That's all you have to do. That's kind of what Jesus meant when He said, seek first the kingdom of God. Look, you're worried about stuff. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, you worry about all kinds of things. You fret about all kinds of things. Look, the lilies of the field, they don't worry about what they wear. But I dress them up and look how beautiful they are. You're way more valuable than they are. Don't worry. Don't fret. Don't spend all of your energy running around and trying to make your life happen. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Everything else will take care of itself. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Learn the implications of that. That's your only work. That's your life's work. That's how important this is. That's your life's work. Secondly, Armed with the practice of keeping our true identity before us, then we are equipped to live it out. So just do it. Therefore, Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Just don't get angrier than you have a right to be. Stop letting worry control you. Stop being overwhelmed by lust and falling to temptation. These things are going to damage your heart. They're going to damage your ability to be who I made you to be and who you want to be. These things are going to damage your relationships. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. No part. Consider all the parts of yourself. Okay, don't offer any of those to wickedness. But rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. It feels like it can't be that simple. But it is. It's not easy, but it's very simple. Just do it. Offer yourselves not to evil desires, but to God. And the renovation will happen. The character that God has given you will more and more display itself over time. You will be renovated. You will become the husband that God designed you to be, that He designed you to be. You will become the worker that God designed you to be. And some of you, Let's be honest. Some of you, he designed to make a lot of money and use it well. Some of you, he did not design to make a lot of money. But he designed you with a higher purpose. And you have been working so hard at the wrong purpose. You have not counted yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. You've bastardized yourself. You've pursued a whore. You've followed a mirage. And then at some point you got really thirsty and you thought, why? There was water there. There wasn't water and you knew it. Just keep going north. I know you're thirsty. I know it's hard. Keep going north. Count yourself dead to sin but alive to God. And then live out of that. Do you struggle with worry? Then remind yourself that you're secure. You're in Christ. Count yourself dead to that. He's got you. You're headed north. Don't dwell on the mirage. Refuse to offer yourself to worry. Find ways that help you overcome it. Offer the parts of yourself to Him. So, do you obsess when you're alone? Okay, well, call a friend. Seek prayer. Get exercise. We've got a team of people over here today that will pray for you. And week in and week out, we leave. And we don't get prayer. Can you throw one up for me? Because I am really discouraged and afraid I'm going to get into some just a negative cycle. Yeah, let's pray. Seek prayer. 
Call a friend. Don't offer yourself and your circumstances to wickedness. Offer them to God. Do you struggle with low self-esteem? Don't withdraw. Don't offer any part of yourself to that tendency. You're loved, you're valuable, you're fully alive, and you get it. That's the truth. You're not making that up. That's the truth. Call someone and get them to remind you. Give your friends permission to drag you out of the house. Find someone to pray for you. Offer yourself to God. Act on what you know to be true. Do you struggle with lust? Make war against that tendency. Know what's true. What's true is you're pure. You're His. You are His instrument. You do reflect Him. Do what you must to your computer or to your habits or to your relationship network to prevent you from offering yourself to wickedness. Offer yourself instead to God. Do you struggle with materialism? Perfect. This is Ash Wednesday. Spend Lent throwing away catalogs and don't go shopping for the next 40 days. I'm serious. The truth is that He is your satisfaction. He really is. And you are satisfied. Offer yourself to Him. Not to your baser desires. Because that's following a mirage. You have been set free by the grace of God. You don't have to follow a mirage. I want to end with a couple of anecdotes that are interesting. Well, they don't help seal the point so much as they remind us of the importance of this point. In an interview a few years ago, former Beatles star Paul McCartney said this, It seems to me that no matter how famous you are, no matter how accomplished or how many awards you get, you're always still thinking there's somebody out there who's better than me. I'm often reading a magazine and hearing about someone's new record, and I think, oh boy, that's going to be better than mine. It's a very common thing. This is Paul McCartney. (laughs) The interviewer then asked, Sir Paul McCartney, you've had success in so many dimensions of music. This is the interviewer trying to pick their jaw off the floor. You really feel such a competitive insecurity with somebody else who's coming out with a record? Somebody who's just trying to copy you, probably. McCartney replied, Unfortunately, yes, I should be able to look at my accolades and go, Come on, Paul, that's enough. But there's still this, listen, there's still this little voice in the back of my brain that goes, No, 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 you could do better. This person over there selling and you're not, try harder. It still can be a little intimidating. That little voice is what we're talking about, isn't it? Part of it. It's not telling you the truth. That's really fascinating, but in the same vein, I want you to listen to this. NPR has a radio show called This American Life. Some of you have heard that. and It featured an episode some time ago entitled The Devil Inside of Me. The show asked various people if they ever felt like they were under the spell of an inner voice that held them in bondage to unwanted thoughts. According to the show's host, Listen to this. It was like people who had been waiting all their lives for somebody to ask them this question. Here are some of the responses from that interview. A man says, I certainly know the voice you're talking about. Another man says, the voice is irresistible, always. I'm in the thrall of that voice. A woman says, totally out of control. It's got this life of its own and I can't tame it anymore. A woman says, I actually have a name for the voice. I call it Stan. 
Stan is the guy who tells me to have the extra glass of wine. Stan is the guy who tells me to sneak out and smoke. A man says, I remember somehow realizing just how finely calibrated the voice was to every nuance, every part of my feelings, including the feeling that I didn't want to smoke cigarettes. And it's like, you might as well have another cigarette because this is how it is. A woman who just got engaged hears her voice say, you better try your hardest to make sure he doesn't take that ring away from you because he's going to find out the truth about you and how much you suck, so you better distract him with a really thin body. At the end of the episode, the host asks someone, do you feel like the voice is winning? A woman replies, right now, yeah. I think I'm in some serious trouble, to be honest. Are you in trouble this morning? Because you're not under law. If you're in Christ, you're not under effort. Just stop. Give up. And come pray. You're under grace. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be okay. You don't have to make it work. You don't have to hold it together. You have to lean into Him. And you have to count on what's true. That's all you have to do. He does the rest. Not only do we not have to listen to that voice, we are commanded to not listen to that voice. God's not just trying to give us another to do. He knows how desperately distracting and damaging that voice can be. That voice is lying. And you and I have to count on the truth. So the real work of renovation is not about trying harder to be thinner or more patient or less angry. Renovation begins with considering the truth, keeping it before us, and then heading due north, ignoring the mirage to our east.